welcome to Integrity. I'm Ben, I'm one of the pastors here, so glad that you're here with us. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We'll look at verses 16 through 13 this morning. I uh, just want to just welcome you all. If this is your first time here, especially welcome you. We'd love to get connected to you in any way. I also just want to give a shout out to any of our students who are back, ECU, Pitt Community College, and we're so glad that you're here. Uh, we're looking forward to the offering going up another $20 if you were gone this month. I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. I, that's just total slam. I love you guys. Um, but look, um, man, we, we want to tell you that we love uh, college students here at Integrity. Uh, we want to see you guys in community uh, as you uh, maybe be a part of this, maybe as a freshman all the way up to a senior. Um, we just want to care for you and help you grow in Christ and, and really train you to know what it means to, to live out the gospel. And so that's part of why we're doing this series. Uh, we are going to be just, uh, this is our second week of, of a four-week series uh, that we're doing just on gospel community. We'll do what we normally do after that which is go through books of the Bible and preach through. I'm going to do Philippians after that. Um, But man, this is a great time for our church. We'll be starting up small groups soon. Hope to see all of you in those as well. And uh, we'd love to get you connected in any way um, that we can. Uh, One thing I want to mention before uh, we jump in, uh, if you've been gone for the summer, um, you just want to update on where we're at as as far as our building goes. Uh, We do plan to move in uh, the beginning of 2019. Uh, It's still undergoing construction and it's it's looking, starting to look kind of like a church now. So that's good. Um, And so uh, if you would love to give to that, uh, it's called the Gospel Legacy. Campaign. You can do that by going on our website, liveintegrity.org, and we'd love to just uh, give you that opportunity. Uh, we're really excited about this, uh, a chance to grow and really be stable in our community and not have a confusing space where, okay, is it a Catholic church or is it a Catholic? No, it's not a Catholic church. We're not associated with Catholic school. We meet in this building that is a Catholic school during the week. That's the easiest way I can explain it, but I'm glad that you found it. And by the sovereignty of God, you all ended up here, and we are grateful. So um, we're going to jump into 1 Timothy chapter 4, and um, before we do that, let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful that we get to call you Father, that we just sang about a moment ago how deep your love is for us, that your love is vast. And Lord, because of Jesus, you love us. Because of Jesus, we're set free from the bondage of sin. And now because of Jesus, you see us as adopted sons and daughters. And now we get to be a part of what it means to be a gospel community. And because of all that, Lord, you won't love us any more or any less because your love is perfect. And Father, as you've called us in gospel community, not only have you called us to us, but you've called us to one another. And I pray that we would grasp what that means this morning so that we can make much of you, our King and our Lord, and we can make much of you to one another, but we can make much of you to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. First Timothy chapter four, we'll look at verses six through 13. This morning, my goal is to explain what on the, in the world are we doing here right now. Maybe you've been to church before and you've wondered what exactly is supposed to be happening And if you've thought that before, uh, you're not alone. Uh, As a kid, a younger kid, I didn't grow up in church. Um, My mother um, would get invited by different coworkers to go to church. So I would often go with my mother and and whatever coworker invited her to whatever church event we went. And I remember this one particular time 
my mother was invited by a coworker who went to an Episcopal church. And it was right around Christmas. said, hey, we're doing this Christmas-themed service. We want you and your son, Ben, to come. And I was just really confused. And that's not a slam on Episcopal church, but I think it was just where I was. I just didn't know. I didn't have any understanding of the church. So all, we're, we're, sitting, we're standing up and we're sitting down and we're reading passages out of the Book of Common Prayer, which I had no idea what that was. This is a big red book and it had different things. And everyone in the congregation seemed to quote every single thing that the minister's saying, but me. I'm just like, I don't know what they're saying. It sounds like, and then we sit down. And then we stand up, and we sit down, and then we pray, and then we stand back up, and then sit down, right? And so I'm like, what is happening? Am I doing something wrong? I don't want to do the wrong thing. I really want to do the right thing. I don't want to be look stupid, but I feel stupid. And I remember toward the very end, they did communion, but I didn't know at that time what communion was. And so the minister comes up, and he says, I want to invite you to partake in communion, and as he, he would then dismiss people row by row. So the front row goes first and everybody comes down to the front and the minister would, I didn't see what was happening, but it looked like he was tipping this goblet forward. And what I realize now is he was giving them the communion wine through a goblet that everyone drank from. But because I didn't know what was happening, I just saw tip forward and then someone leaning forward. I thought they were spitting in the cup so when it got to my turn, which is about mid-aisle, I'm from Eastern North Carolina. You put a cup in front of me. I'm going to spit in it, right? So I just went. And I will never forget this minister's face. I immediately knew I had done the wrong thing. He was like, oh, like, you know? And then he had a decision to make. Do I say something? Do I shame this young boy? Do I just keep rolling? He just kept rolling. So everybody that day got a little taste of Jesus and a little taste of Ben Tugwell's spit that came after me. And that is what happened that day. Now, I think I'm one of the reasons why most churches don't serve communion that way anymore because of situations like that. So maybe you've been in a situation where you've been to church and you don't know what in the world is going on. You are not alone. And hopefully this morning we can clear things up for you of, of what really the church is when it gathers. What is the church? What should the church do when it gathers? Although many churches are gathered right now and they're doing very different things, but what are the elements that, that really make up what the church should be when, when we gather? That's my goal to walk you through this morning is that anytime our church gathers, this is what we want to do. And so in 1 Timothy 4, it's a great place to start when thinking through what a church should do when it gathers. Paul is talking to a young pastor named Timothy, and he's telling Timothy, hey, don't be afraid to preach the good news of the gospel. Don't be afraid to continue to stay faithful. And that's sort of his cry to Timothy. Hey, continue to, to preach faithfully God's word. And even in 1 Timothy 4, he, he's going to say something like, hey, there's going to be people that don't like the word of God. There's some people going to stay and act like they're a part of the, the, the gospel community. And, and, and what's going to happen is they're going to fall away. But that's shouldn't discourage you from continuing to preach the good news of the gospel. And so what he does then in, in, in the beginning of chapter four, that's the beginning. He's telling him, hey, even though people fall away, continue to preach the gospel. And then right here in the middle of chapter four, he begins to show, okay, this is what you do when you gather together as the church. 
And Paul is telling this to Timothy, who's leading a young, vibrant, growing church, this wonderful truth of, hey, when you gather, this is how you stay faithful to God's word. So 1 Timothy 4, I'll start in verse 6. He says, if you, Timothy, put these things, put the word of God before the brothers or before the sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. He says, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. Then he says, Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now listen to verse 10. He says, For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who Believe. Now, there's a lot there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus a lot on verse 10 here. I'll get to verses 6 and nine through 9 just in a moment. But why does he say in verse 10, why does he say we toil and strive? He says we toil and strive. Hey, we do the work of the ministry. We become a part of the church. And we do the work of the gospel community for this reason. He says the living God. That's the reason why we do what we do, because of the living God. And he says, who is the living God? He says, the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Now, right here, Paul draws Timothy into the reason why the church should do anything that it does. And he says that unapologetically, it's the gospel. And if you're wondering what the gospel is, he he really summarized the gospel in verse 10. He says, first of all, it's understanding who the living God is. He's the living God. That's the essence of the gospel, believing that Jesus Christ is the living God. Now, did Jesus Christ live on the earth as a man? Yes, but he was also God. We call it, he's 100% God and 100% man. He's God wrapped in flesh. That's who Jesus Christ was. Jesus Christ, to prove that he was God, was born of a virgin, which means he didn't have the curse of sin that you and I have from our first parents, Adam and Eve. He was born perfect. He lived then a life where he did not sin, even though he was tempted in every single way that you and I have been tempted. Jesus Christ did not sin. And then as he lived his life up to his 30s, He claimed to be one with the Father, therefore claiming himself to be God. And so what did they do? They crucified him. And when they crucified Jesus Christ, the scriptures tell us that he bore all all the sins of those who believe on himself. And he died as an atoning sacrifice for us, meaning he died in our place. He lived the life that you and I should have lived, but we couldn't and we didn't because we're sinners. But because he was perfect, he could be a perfect sacrifice for us. And as he died on the cross, he absorbed the wrath of God. And what happened then? He was buried. But the good news is that three days later, he rose from the grave and he conquered the penalty of death, the penalty that we deserved, He conquered it through resurrecting from the grave. And that 
is the essence of the gospel. And I say that emphatically this morning because when you've come here this morning, you're not worshiping a God who is distant. When you sing a song about how deep the Father's love is for us, listen, he's a detailed, intimate God who knows you, friends. He knows you. He knows when you were born. He ordained your parents. He ordained your life. He ordained everything. And he has a personal, and people say salvation is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's personal because he's living. He's alive. He is with us this morning. Is that good news? It's good news because it's the gospel. And he says, hey, when we come together, we worship the living God. He's with us. And not only is he the living God, he calls him the savior of all people. So it's believing that he's the living God is one thing, but it's also believing that he, he says, especially to those who believe, he says, it's believing that he's your savior. A lot of people throughout the years, they come to our church and they wonder, okay, man, I've heard the gospel now for the first time maybe, and my, my life's starting to change. I'm in my 20s, I'm in my 30s, I'm in my 40s. I'm starting to realize, man, maybe I didn't know Christ when I was young. I know I prayed a prayer when I was young or whatever your story is. And you've been going, okay, maybe I become a believer recently. And so, so they deal with their testimony. Like, when did I actually become a believer? Here, here's one of the ways that I, here's one of the questions I ask. When do you realize that the cross of Jesus Christ, that Jesus' death applied to you. When you realize, okay, man, this is when the gospel made sense. This is when I realized Jesus Christ died for my sin. I can't believe it. I'm overwhelmed by his love and his grace. And so this is part of what he's saying. He's, you're understanding, yes, he is the living God. Jesus is the living God, but he's also my savior. He's the savior of all people, but especially those who believe, those who realize that the gospel applied to them. And so he's the living God. He's the savior of all people. And this is what, this is why I love what Paul says here. He says, for to this end, we toil and we thrive. Let's have that up in verse 10. He says, to this end, we toil and thrive because we have set our hope on the living God who's the savior of all people, especially those who believe. In other words, the church does what it does primarily for this purpose, for the sake of the gospel. And this is why here at Integrity Church, we are unapologetically, unashamedly, and joyfully gospel-centered which means we believe that the church is, are full of gospel people. We believe that the church is a gospel community because we understand everything comes from this truth. Everything comes from this gospel. And he says, especially to those who believe. Now, it's an important caveat there that he says there at the end, end of verse 10. So for this reason... The church, the gospel community exists for gospel people. And understanding this affects the way that we do things here at Integrity. Because we believe that when we gather, we gather primarily for believers 
to grow in their faith. Now, it seems like a simple thing to say, but it's actually kind of countercultural to say that. Let, let, me, let me explain. There's this popular idea in American Christianity that says the Sunday morning gathering of the church should be primarily focused on sharing the gospel to lost people. Now, is part of what we do sharing the gospel to lost people? Absolutely. But that's not the primary reason why we gather together as believers. But what ends up happening when you have that mindset that, okay, this whole gathering is just an evangelistic gathering and the whole purpose of it is to share the gospel with those who are lost, what ends up happening is you miss the opportunity to develop believers, to grow them and mature them, and you end up with people who are biblically illiterate. Everything becomes centered around that, and the preaching becomes only evangelistic. It doesn't aid and grow believers. And so as a result, believers aren't being poured into, they're not developing, they're not maturing. And furthermore, to do church that way is really inconsistent with what we see in Scripture. Believers in the New Testament, they gathered because they believed the gospel and they wanted to grow in the gospel together. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we aren't evangelistic in our services. It doesn't mean that we aren't intentional to share the gospel with those who are lost. I believe, by the way, in every single service, every single week, there are people who don't know Christ that are there at every service. They might, they might uh, admit that they don't know Christ, or maybe they, maybe they don't admit they don't know Christ, but I believe in every service, there's someone in this room right now that doesn't have a relationship with Christ. So what do we want to do? Well, we want to make some parts of it, our church attractional for lost people. We want to be sensitive to people who don't have a relationship with Christ. We want to be intentional. We want to be clear. We want to want to confuse things. We want to give them opportunities to trust Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're saying, man, I'm not a believer, let me tell you something. We are so glad that you are here. You're in the best place that you could possibly be because you're around people who know the gospel and they would love to share it with you, including myself. And I, I, we love you and we're going to share it with you later on in the service and throughout the service. And I just shared the gospel with you two minutes ago, all right? That's how much we love you. We want you to have this relationship with Christ. But at the same time, as we gather, we're gathering really as believers. And there's a lot of church things that the church can do, but if we aren't a gospel community, we're missing the point of everything. We could be humanitarian. We can love our city well. We can feed the homeless, we can care for widows, we can care for orphans, we can try our best to put an end to sex and drug trafficking, and we should strive to do these things. However, if we don't first see ourselves as a gospel community or as a community centered around what Christ has done, we're doing the work that's based on ourselves and not Jesus. And so this is the foundation. This is the foundation of gospel community. To understand when we gather, it's about Christ. It's all about what Jesus has done. This is why we come together. And as we see this foundation, I want, I want to point out a few things that Paul says in this passage. Look again at verse 6. He says, if you put these things, put God's word before the brothers, before the sisters, you will see a servant, a good servant of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do, he says, with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, Train yourself for godliness. 
For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now, notice how many times he talked about being trained in godliness. He, he, he listed at least twice there in that section. The word godliness is something that Paul is literally continue to pound into the heart of young Timothy. He wants Timothy to be godly. He wants Timothy to train others in godliness. The word godliness is only mentioned 15 times in the New Testament, and Paul actually mentions it 13 times between 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And and, and in 1 Timothy alone, he mentions it nine times. So godliness is something that Paul is really trying to press into the heart of this young, growing, vibrant church. And he says, train yourself for godliness. And the the Greek phrase, it actually means naked. It's weird. Because you don't think about godliness and being naked in the same vein, correct? And and the phrase actually comes from the, the word which we derive, the English word, gymnasium. Which is ironic, because if there's anything I hate about going to the gym besides working out, it's people naked in the locker rooms. I just hate it. It's like, come on, man. Like, stand in this, like, you know, get a towel, you know? It's just like, come on. It's like a phobia of mine. I just don't want to do it. Like, oh, just, I'll, I'll never shower. Like, that's how I feel, you know? And so you go in and you're like, man, it's just, just too, you know? But what would happen in these days, in, in this time that Paul is addressing, and what he means is to train yourself in godliness, it could be interpreted to exercise naked. Now, in Greek culture, people wore cloaks, they wore robes. And so in order to run and to exercise, those things would often get in the way of you running fast or doing anything. So what they would do, and they didn't have like Under Armour and, you know, all these things that we have now. They, they had nothing. So it's like cloak or nothing. So cloak, can't run in, so I'm going to run with nothing. I'm going to be naked. And this is one of those texts that people... Crack me up. They're like, man, I wish we could live in the Old Testament and New Testament times and just do things the way they did it. No, you don't, bro. You don't want to run around and see people naked running around the street, all right? But this is what he's saying. Okay, so he's saying exercise naked means to not have anything that hinders you from growing in godliness. To not have anything that slows you down. Maybe you've been on a swim team. Maybe you've even seen the Olympics where they shave their heads or they shave their the hair on their arms, their, arm, their hair on their legs, their armpit hair, and they're saying, okay, we're doing this so that we can swim faster. We're getting rid of everything that hinders. Paul's talking about the exact same thing. And so what is it that hinders us from being trained in godliness? Well, he lists one thing. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. So he's saying, you know, know what good teaching is and bad teaching is. Know what's centered around the gospel. Know what's founded in the word and all the other stuff that's getting in the way. Man, you need to clear that out so you can be laser focused on God's word. But there's other ways that he tells us how to make that clear. He says in verse 11, he says, command and teach these things. What things? Well, again, remember verse 10. 10 was all about the living God, the Savior of all people. So he's saying, okay, we have, we believe in the living God. We believe in the Savior of all people. Now command and teach these things. Command and teach the gospel. Have your people well-versed in the gospel. Have your people be experts in 
the gospel. And then he goes on in verse 12. He says, let, and he's, again, this is Paul talking to young Timothy, young pastor. He says, do not uh, let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Paul tells Timothy, this young, timid pastor, two things here that I absolutely love. I don't want you to miss these things. First of all, he says, let no one despise you for your youth. He's saying this, Paul, an older pastor to a younger pastor. And he's letting him know, as long as you have the gospel, you have something to offer. Friends, godliness has nothing to do with age. It has everything to do with the gospel. Godliness is all about you being redeemed by Christ and then you growing in what it means to be more like him. But it has nothing to do with age. Now, sometimes we look at older people and we think, okay, they're older, they're godly. That's not always the case. Not to, not to minimize experience and life stage and all those things, but godliness is all about you being redeemed and walking in that. And that has nothing to do with age. You have something to offer if you have Christ. Godliness has nothing to do with what you do. It's all about what Christ has done. And the beauty is we, because we all have something to offer if we've been redeemed by Christ, we all have something to offer each other. We can all help each other grow in Christ. That's the beauty of being a part of gospel community. So that's the first thing. He says to young Timothy, you have something to offer. Don't let anyone despise you for your youth. And then in, in, in the second thing, he says, let the believers, uh, set, I'm sorry, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Now, this part of this verse right here is convicting to me, not only because of my personal walk that I want to grow in these areas, but also it's personal to me because I think if we all grasp this, it can make such an impact even on my immediate family. When I think about my wife and my two precious sons. I want you to remember again, Paul is telling this young pastor to set an example, conduct, love, faith, and purity. And again, he says, if you're a believer, you have something to offer. And here, here's why this is, is dear to me personally, especially in this stage of life for me. I'm 39 years old. My oldest son is 11. And I finally got to the point that I am not cool anymore. And it stinks, man. It's terrible. My six-year-old still thinks I'm invincible. He still thinks I'm the strongest person. He still thinks I'm the smartest person, the fastest person. And I'm gonna try to convince him of that until he's like 30 years old, right? I want him, I want him. But my 11-year-old, man, he's intuitive. He's just picked it up, man. Like, you're kind of a dork, right? You know, he's kind of picked that up, right? And I had like my ultimate lame dad moment a few weeks ago. He had a sleepover, had his buddy over, and they were up late playing video games and talking and, you know, giggling, and we could hear them all night long. And finally, I think they went to bed at like 1, 1.30. And so they came, they were downstairs at the table eating cereal. And I walk downstairs and I go, hey, guys, you know, y'all were up late last night, a bunch of party animals. And they were like, and I look at my spin. His hair is all messed up. He's eating his cereal, and he just goes, and he looks at me like, like that. 
And I was like, oh, man, I'm a dork, you know? Like, he just thinks I'm so lame. And his buddy was like, who's your loser dad? You know, he didn't say that, but he had that look on his face, right? And I was like, oh, no, you know? Like, Gideon, let's go back, you know, let's go play, you know? I just was you know, shifting around, you know? But it's this truth, it's this reality because, and, and here, here's my fear in that. Not, not that I, I want him to think I'm cool, but it's really about my impact. I don't want to lose my impact. I don't want him to think, hey, because dad's kind of a lame, like I don't want him to think that what I say is lame. Because these are things that I really want to demonstrate for my boys. I really want to demonstrate what it means to be an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Even though I've, I've strived for these things and certainly I've, I've failed in these things at times, this is what I hope to really put in the hearts of my two boys. And so here's why it's dear to me. At some point, it gets, it gets less and less impactful for dad to say it. And it gets more and more impactful for them to say, okay, that's what dad believes, but he has to believe that because he's a pastor. So when they start to look at other examples, and get, let me tell you who he looks at. He looks at you young men. He looks at you 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, you 20-year-olds. He says, okay, I want to see if what dad's saying is legit. So I'm going to start looking at this college kid seeing how he's, or this college man, that's how he's, you know, right? I want to see how he's, I want to see how he's living this out. I want to see him show me that when he goes out and plays basketball with his buddies and he gets fouled, he doesn't whine, right? He doesn't slam the basketball. He doesn't cuss and he doesn't scream and he's not angry and acting like a baby, right? He doesn't act like Carmelo Anthony or anything like that. You know, he's just maturity, Right? And so, so then, and then how about the, in conduct? I want them to be able to say, man, look at the way that this young man is to his boss, to his professor, is to his parents. I want them to be able to say, man, look at how, and listen to this young man, how he is with women. Look at how he doesn't objectify them. Look at how he t- treats them like they're precious Look how he opens the door for them. Look how he pays for their meals, right? Like how he showers on a regular basis and all these kind of important things that they do. And so my boys, they're going to start to look at examples and all of you. And I'm not the only parent that wants that. Every single parent who loves their kids wants that. They want you, young men, young women, to be examples their, for their children. They want these young, their young girls to look up at you young ladies and see the confidence that you have in Christ and see that your identity is in Christ and not in boys. They want to see that confidence that goes and leads to godliness. They want that for their little girl in you. And so this is all great stuff. He's telling this young pastor, hey, set an example. It makes an impact. It makes an impact. And by the way, none of us are exempt from this text. It's not just set an example because um, you need a a 20-year-old to be an example to an 11-year-old. No, it's actually everyone needs to set an example. I need to set an example for those of you who are younger than me. And by the way, if those of you who are 40 and older, by the way, I'm 39, so 40 is old, right, to me, right? I I need you to be examples for me. I need to know what it's like to have two boys and 
have high school students be discipled? How do you disciple a high school student? I have no idea. I'm going to read books about it, but I need examples. I need to know what it means to send your boys off to college. I need to know what it means to be one day an empty nester. I need to know what it means to retire well for the sake of the gospel. I need those examples for me. My wife and I, we're saying, please be an example for us of godliness in these ways so that we can, as Paul says to Timothy, be trained in godliness. Show us the gospel is what I'm saying. All of us need those things. And for this reason alone, when we do small groups, we don't do affinity groups. Like here's the college group and here's the 20 somethings and here's the singles. By the way, whoever came up with like having just singles groups, those are sometimes really sad. So like, don't, you know, it's not just, (laughs) we don't want to do that. We don't want to do, here's the retired group. We don't want to do that. We want to mix it all together because man, you're bringing everyone together. And we're setting examples for each other and we're growing together. We're showing different life stages and backgrounds and and ethnicities. And it's a beautiful thing. And you know what? It's a beautiful thing because that's what it means to be a gospel community. That's what it means to be the church. And so in closing, this is what he says. He says, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. And again, Paul's words to Timothy, he's saying, stay faithful to God's word. In the next chapter, in, in chapter three, he says, all scripture is breathed out of God, uh, and uh, breathed out by God, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Paul is telling Timothy, listen, continue to preach the gospel, continue to uphold God's word. He says it's public, it means it's taught regularly. When we gather, that's what's expected. We're expected to come and hear God's word. He says for exhortation, it's for encouragement. It builds up the body. God's word's not meant to slam you or to shame you or to make you feel bad. It's supposed to, if you're in Christ, to build you up and to bring about godly conviction. And it's, it's supposed to leave where your heart is then motivated and refreshed to, to love God more. So it's publicly taught. He says exhortation. Then he says teaching. And I love what Paul says in in Acts 20 when he's talking to the same church. He says, for this reason, I I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so this is the reason why as a church, church, we believe in preaching through books of the Bible, uh, walking through texts over and over again so that when you see, we want you to see the grand narrative of God's word. We want you to see the whole counsel of God's word. And even if we don't go through a book, man, we want to stay in one passage so you can understand what it means to read the Bible in context and understand it for how the author originally wrote it so that you can understand the character of God. And so we say, hey, it needs to be publicly taught. It needs to be there for your encouragement, and it needs to be a part of what we do when we teach. So now as you hear this, don't, I'm not up here saying, man, we do it right and everyone else does it wrong. Rather, I am showing you that our biblical, here's the biblical convictions behind what we do. And at the same time, I do, though, believe that every church should embrace the weight of this text. And there are two things that I think that every church should have. One, Every church should be gospel-centered. If it's not gospel-centered, it's not based on what Christ has done. And if it's not based on Christ done, what is done, it's actually not functioning as a church. That's what a church is. The church is gospel people. The second thing is, 
Every church should be biblically grounded. Every church should, should, church should faithfully preach the Bible. And it's sad and almost humorous to me. I've gone and spoke at different places and they heard, have heard about our church and they say, oh, I know who you are. You're the guy who teaches the Bible. I'm like, isn't that what we're supposed to do, right? When we gather, yes, it's supposed to be biblically grounded. It shouldn't be a shock that we preach the Bible. And so for us, these are how these convictions in God's word, they inform our method of doing what we do. And so we, when we gather, we wanna do two things well. We wanna, first of all, preach God's word well. And second of all, and most importantly, we wanna rehearse the gospel. When we leave here, we want you to be wrestling with scripture and having a better understanding of what God's word means and then a better understanding of uh, God, the character of God. And that's not to make you a biblical academiac. We actually believe that that alone transforms your life, knowing the character and the heart of God. The second thing is rehearsing the gospel. And our hope is when we gather is not to give you a bunch of moral right and wrongs or how to morally better your life. No, I, I echo what Paul says to Timothy. We toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. So this morning, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pray. And then what I want, want us to do is I'm gonna walk through our response and how we can rehearse the gospel and how we respond to God's word together.